Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if we've never met before, my name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Liberty Church Collinswood, and I want to welcome you once again. Thank you so much for being here on this second Sunday of Advent. Excited uh, to be preaching. This is our second uh, sermon uh, in our Advent series from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you want to look on page 8 of your worship folder, this is where our scripture reading is found. I'll give you just a moment to get there. If you're joining us online, please, you can follow along on the, the worship PDF on our website, libertycollinswood uh, backslash live. You can find it there. Scripture reading. This is Matthew 1, 18 to 25. If you would please stand. Uh, to honor the scriptures. If you're new with us, this is a tradition that we do here at Liberty Church uh, to honor God's word. Hear these words from the book that we love. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we gather here once again this morning uh, to worship, uh, to sing songs of praise, to hear uh, from your word, uh, to take communion, to enjoy you, to enjoy one another. God, we do ask that you would show up in a powerful way this morning. Send your Holy Spirit. Would you illumine these words, this scripture? Would you prick our hearts in the ways that we need to be pricked? Would you encourage our hearts in ways that we need to be encouraged? We ask that you would do your work this morning amongst us. We pray all this in the name of this Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. When the uh, COVID-19 pandemic started last March, I remember hearing a pastor remark, and I can't remember exactly who it was at this point, but I remember him saying that this pandemic was a forced Lent, a forced Lent. And indeed, it was in many ways. Quarantine and social distancing, stay-at-home orders, they caused us to give up many things that we took for granted. 
Uh, we, we had to fast, so to speak, from dinner out, from going into the office, from daycare and in-person schooling, from gathering with friends, and even from corporate worship. But as I have reflected recently on these last 21 months, can you believe it's been 21 months, that we've been dealing with COVID-19, I've come to realize that the pandemic not only corresponds to the liturgical season of Lent, but also to the one that we are currently in, which is Advent, as has already been mentioned. During these 27 days leading up to Christmas morning, we wait in hopeful expectation for the coming of Jesus. It's a season in which we mimic God's ancient people, longing for the arrival of the promised Messiah, one who will bring relationship, reconciliation, restoration of relationship, for the God who will free his people from loneliness and from isolation because of exile. British singer-songwriter Michael David Rosenberg, who you might know better by the name Passenger, he released his 12th studio album in July 2020 called Patchwork. This is an album that he wrote and recorded nearly all of the songs during lockdown at his home in England while he was himself alone and in isolation. And the album is full of honest and vulnerable lyrics about the difficulties of the pandemic, of quarantine, and of loneliness. And in one of the songs uh, called Venice Canals, which is interesting, he actually uh, wrote, recorded, uh, and released the song all in a seven-day time, which is pretty, pretty remarkable, uh, in, in April of 2020. And this is uh, a couple of the verses here. Well, I know there's heartbreak and sorrow, and I know there's really nothing I can say, but we'll be closer tomorrow to the end of all of this than we are today. So watch the sunrise from your window and hear the rain fall on the ground. Tell your loved ones that you love them and miss the ones that aren't around. And like Michael David Rosenberg, I think all of us experienced and are maybe still in many ways experiencing a forced advent due to COVID. If I'm, if I'm honest for a moment, over the last 21 months, I personally have felt lonely. I've personally felt isolated. I've experienced the pain of living at a distance from loved ones. My wife and I, for example, not being able to travel uh, to Tennessee last Christmas, missing out on family and holiday traditions for the first time in our lives. I've felt the ache of being separated from friends, friends that are both near as well as friends that are far. And I've even experienced the hurt of losing some relationships with some people altogether. And in these last 21 months, I have longed for face-to-face connection and deep friendships in ways that two years ago, I never knew that I could or never thought that I would. What about you? What about you? I would venture to guess that each and every one of us in this room this morning or those that are watching online, we've all had similar feelings and similar experiences since March of 2020. And that at some point in those months, we have longed for the physical presence of a person or persons that you love and have craved intimacy that was unavailable. That's the loneliness and isolation of exile. That's what it feels like to be in a season of waiting. That's Advent. That's Advent. 
And the Christmas story, which we encounter here in our passage, is a story about relationship, about reconciliation, restoration of relationship. And it's good news to men and women like us who are feeling detached and lonely and isolated. In our text this morning, it begins with the words, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And see, there are two places in the New Testament and the scriptures in which the account of Jesus' birth is told here in the Gospel of Matthew and then also in the Gospel of Luke. And you're probably more familiar with the text in Luke. If you grew up in a Christian household like I did, this Luke is the, the story of the birth of Jesus that your mom or dad forces you to listen to in its entirety from the King James Version or some translation that as a, as a little kid you don't understand. On Christmas morning, before you rip into your presents, you have to sit there quietly and you're just waiting. That's probably the one you're more familiar with. It's the one, Luke is the one that includes many of the images that we see in store windows this time of year or many of the images that we hear in Christmas carols. Things like shepherds keeping watch over their sheep, choirs of angels, a stable full of animals, a baby lying in a manger. But our text this morning from Matthew actually contains none of those images. It contains none of those things. Instead, it emphasizes the earthly father of Jesus. It emphasizes Joseph, the husband of Mary. And here in this passage, we catch a little bit of a glimpse that we don't get in Luke about who this Joseph is and what part he had to play in the Christmas story. And you could say maybe that this is, that Matthew is a father's perspective on the birth of Jesus. And so from here, I want to talk in three parts about the birth of Jesus from the perspective of Joseph. First, I'm going to talk about a father's integrity. Second, I'm going to talk about a father's choice. And then third, and finally, a father's heart. So a father's integrity, a father's choice, and a father's heart. So let's start with a father's integrity. In Matthew's telling of the Christmas story, we learn that Joseph is a pretty good dude. He's a pretty good dude. Verses 18, the second half, and verse 19. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It's important to understand this verse to realize that betrothal in this culture and in this time period was not a simple promise to marry. It's very different from our current ideas of engagements in the modern West, and rather, it was really the first stage of marriage. It was legally binding, and you actually had to divorce to get out of a betrothal. In other words, Joseph and Mary in this story are already considered to be husband and wife. They are already married in many ways. And what happens? Well, it's discovered that Mary is pregnant. The text says that she is found to be with child before they came together, which means that Joseph and Mary, before they had consummated their marriage, both ceremonially and sexually, she was found to be pregnant. And the text doesn't really tell us how this came about. It just says that she was found to be uh, we know from the Gospel of Luke that Mary spent the first few months of her pregnancy with her cousin Elizabeth, and maybe we could speculate that here in uh, Matthew that she's about four months pregnant, which means she's probably beginning to have a little bit of a baby bump, maybe can't hide it as well anymore. We don't really know. But either way, the text tells us that Joseph was 
uh, a just or a righteous man. And when it's discovered that Mary is pregnant, he cannot, in good conscience, as a good Jew, marry this woman because she was unfaithful to him and he could not tolerate that sin. See, Joseph was concerned to uphold and obey God's law. However, instead of exposing Mary, who's a woman he clearly loves, to the disgrace of public divorce, he instead decides to do it more discreetly. He decides to do it quietly, secretly, for her sake. And so we learn that Joseph is not only morally upstanding, but he is also compassionate. He's concerned not only with God's word, but also with God's people. See, speaking on this passage, Tim Keller says that Joseph strikes a remarkable balance between being moral without being moralistic. That he is both righteous and kind. And so we learn that the the character of Joseph, the conduct of Joseph, who he is, even before he learns the truth about this baby, which we'll find out in just a second, is truly inspiring. That he is both righteous and compassionate. So that's a father's integrity. So second, a father's choice. So before Joseph follows through on his plan to divorce Mary, he receives some divine revelation. Verses 20 and 21. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, the angel here in this dream, he reveals two things to Joseph. First, he informs the husband that his wife has not been unfaithful to him. It's good news. But her pregnancy is supernatural and divine in origin. It's not the result of infidelity, as Joseph could only have assumed. And second, the angel tells Joseph that the baby, this baby, is the long-awaited Messiah, the one whom the Jews have been waiting to come and to rescue Israel from Roman oppression and to purify God's people. The name Jesus, which the angel uses here, is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. If you know your scriptures at all, there's a couple of famous Joshuas in the Old Testament. And it means that Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. There's actually an interesting little allusion here, more or less a quote of Psalm 130 verse 8, which says, the Lord will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And so the angel using that passage, using the word Jesus, is telling Joseph in effect that this baby, Mary's child, this is the one who will do this. He is, Jesus is the redeemer and the promised one who will bring God's salvation, who will set all things right. And the climax of this story centers around Joseph's response to to do what the angel has said. Having heard this, what is he going to do? Will he believe the dream? Will he obey God? Or will he ignore the angel's words, chalk it up to just some indigestion, and carry out his divorce plans? What is he going to do? The final verses of the passage tell us that he did the former. 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife and knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
In order to grasp the magnitude here of Joseph's choice, we have to recall the beginning of Matthew's gospel, which is the verses immediately preceding this passage. Uh, It's a genealogy. Jim actually preached about this last week, so if you missed it, go back, website, podcast, wherever, and check it out. But there's a genealogy there. And in these early chapters of the book, the writer, Matthew, is seeking to demonstrate that Jesus is qualified to be the Messiah. He's arguing and trying to show that he is the Messiah, the Davidic king who would save God's people. But there's a problem we find out at the end of the genealogy and even as we carry on into this story. What's the problem? Well, the ancestry of David is traced through Joseph. But we learn that Jesus is not his biological son. That's a problem. If he's going to be the Messiah, he has to be from the Davidic line. How could someone born of a virgin be called the son of David? And there's a one-word answer to that. It's adoption. Adoption. At the end of the passage, it says, he called his name Jesus. See here, Joseph acknowledges this child to be his son, and he names him. And it's that act, the act of naming him, that Jesus then is grafted in to that Davidic ancestry. And the genealogical problem is erased because of Joseph's choice, because of his obedience to the angel, to his obedience to God. Before glossing over that, I want you to consider for a moment how incredible this is. From Joseph's perspective, can you imagine the amount of courage and the amount of faith that he had to have to believe all of this, to believe this angelic dream, to stay betrothed to a young woman who was beginning to show the signs of pregnancy that he knew he was not responsible for. It takes a huge amount of courage. And you can only imagine in this culture the gossip and the personal scandal that must have come that he was willing to take on, that he was willing to endure. That's Joseph's choice, a father's choice. And so finally, a father's heart. In Matthew's brief little commentary here on these events in verses 22 and 23, we're confronted with the unfathomable depth of God's mercy and God's steadfast love. Look again at those verses, 22 and 23. All of this took place to fulfill what the angel of the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is actually an, an Old Testament quote here. You'll see in the scripture reading, if you're looking in your Bibles, it's indented in. This is from Isaiah 7:14, from one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. And see, the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy, it refers to Isaiah, the prophet there. It refers to his own son. And before the child was old enough to know the difference between right and wrong, God was going to destroy Israel's enemies. He was going to be a sign, this child of of Isaiah, uh, to King Ahaz that God was with his people, that God was their helper and their protector. However, it's interesting that later on in Isaiah, two chapters later, there's another description regarding the birth of a wonderful child who will be born. This is Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And Jim mentioned a moment ago our devotional, week two of our devotional that's up now on the website, the adults uh, morning and evening liturgy. This is the refrain uh, that, was, that was chosen for this coming week. And so you'll get some time if you do the devotional to reflect more on these verses, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And clearly this second passage, it cannot refer to Isaiah's son or to any earthly king or any mere human from the line of David, but instead it refers to a divine messianic king. And Matthew is quoting from that Isaiah 7 to say that this baby that is being born of a virgin, Mary and adopted by Joseph, Jesus of Nazareth, he is this figure. He is this miraculous baby. He is not only a sign of God's presence, he's not only a sign of God's presence, but he's actually the embodiment of God's presence. He is God with us not only in a metaphorical or a spiritual sense, but he is God with us in a literal and physical one. Speaking about this passage, theologian Stanley Hauerwas writes, what should startle us in this passage, what should stun us is not that Mary is a virgin, but that God refuses to abandon us. I love that. What should startle us, what should stun us, it's not that Mary is a virgin, but that God refuses to abandon us. In the incarnation, God comes to his people personally. He refuses to stay at a distance. He, you could say in our modern COVID-influenced language, he refuses to practice social distancing. He enters into the world he created to rescue lonely and isolated men and women. And this is the heart of God. This is the heart of a father that we see in the Christmas story. He wants to be present with you. He desires to satisfy every ache, to fulfill every longing that you have for relationship. All of those things that we felt over the last 21 months. He has provided a way in Jesus for him to come to you and for you to come to him. And it's interesting that in this passage, in many ways, that Jesus' earthly father is a type, an example of Jesus's heavenly father. Joseph is shown to be righteous and merciful, and so is God. Joseph called Jesus by name so that he could become his adopted son, a part of the Davidic family. And likewise, God calls each of us by name so that we could become adopted sons and daughters, a part of the family of God, brothers and sisters together with Christ. And I know before I wrap up that I can't speak about this passage and mention the virgin birth and not touch on that for a moment. What are we to make of this detail? The virgin birth. What are we to make of this detail in the Christmas story? Did a young woman, probably a, a teenager who had never had sex, did she really get pregnant? Did she really have a baby? Did this really happen? If you're not a follower of Jesus or you're someone who's just exploring spiritual realities, I realize that this idea of a virgin birth can sound uh, pre-modern. It can sound uh, antiquated. Uh, it's an element of this story that maybe uh, you might think should be classified as myth or fable and not one that should be taken as historical fact. And I agree that this is a, a mysterious thing. It's a difficult teaching for our modern, Western, scientific-oriented minds uh, to accept. I get that. But with that being said, I want to say for just a moment that this is not something, the virgin birth, that we can shrug off or regard lightly. 
And let me just give three quick reasons. This doesn't answer every question regarding the virgin birth, but I do want to share this. We don't get a chance except uh, during the season of Advent and Christmas to talk about this. So let me share a couple of thoughts here about why we can't shrug this off or regard it lightly. First, the Bible unavoidably, unavoidably teaches that Mary was a virgin. We just can't argue with that. That's what the Bible says. It's sometimes argued that the Hebrew word that's used in Isaiah, uh, that's quoted in verse 23, uh, can refer to a young woman of marriageable age uh, who isn't necessarily a virgin. And that may be true. I'm not a Hebrew scholar uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So for the sake of argument, let's say that could be true. But the context of our passage makes it clear that Mary was indeed a virgin. As I mentioned earlier, she was discovered to be pregnant before Joseph and her came together. And again, in verse 25, it says that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth. And so Matthew makes it clear that Joseph and Mary had not had sex prior to the pregnancy and did not until after the baby arrived. And furthermore, if you look at Luke, and we won't go there, when an angel comes to Mary and tells her this story, tells her what's going to happen to her, she confesses to being a virgin and says, well, how can this be? How is this possible? Second, the worldwide historic church has always confessed the virgin birth to be true and orthodox doctrine. And in fact, you might realize, or you'll certainly notice it this morning here in a few minutes, that we confess that we believe this every single week when we recite the Apostles' Creed, which is the oldest known statement of Christian doctrine that we know of. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And this doctrine is reaffirmed in other early ancient creeds of the church. You can go look at these later, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, etc. And even the standards of our denomination, which come from the 1500s uh, in the Reformed Church of America, they also affirm the virgin birth. The Belgic Confession, for example, says that Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation. So the Bible teaches it, the worldwide historic church teaches it, but also third, the virgin birth is actually an essential component to our salvation, to our understanding of how we are redeemed and made right with God. The scriptures teach that Jesus was true human and true God, and it's in the virgin birth where Jesus's humanity and divinity collide. That's where they come together in this womb of a teenager. And these two natures of Jesus are actually what allow him to be our savior and to make us right. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is another one of the standards in our denomination, it's, it's great. We taught on that here uh, at Liberty Church Collinswood a couple of years ago, says that the mediator, the one who makes us right with God, must be a true and righteous human because God's justice demands that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for sin. When we get back to our Genesis series, we're going to get into Genesis 3. We'll talk more about sin and what that means. But we believe that Our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. And so therefore, a human must be the one that pays this penalty. But at the same time, the mediator must also be God because a sinful human could never pay for the sin of others because they're guilty themselves. And so in other words, for us to be reconciled to God, we need a Savior who is both human and not human, which is pretty rare, (laughs) pretty unique. We need Jesus to be 
fully God and fully man. And the virgin birth gives us that by God's grace. In his popular 2005 book, Velvet Elvis, Pastor Rob Bell, he suggests that the virgin birth is simply one of many springs of doctrine in this Christian theology trampoline. And therefore, if you get the image, if you had ever had like a big trampoline in your backyard, that you could pull one of these springs out, you could flex it, you could play with it. Maybe you alter it a little bit, or maybe even you don't put it back in the trampoline, and it doesn't really matter. It won't affect the integrity of the trampoline. There's still enough other springs, I guess, is the idea. The trampoline will still work. And it's a nice metaphor. It's a nice image, but it's simply not true. It's simply not true. Is the virgin birth shocking? Yeah, it is. It's shocking. Is the virgin birth a difficult doctrine to comprehend? Yeah, it is. But... If we believe, and again, we talked about this Genesis chapter 1 just a couple of months ago. If we believe in a God who created all things, then we can also believe in a God who can suspend or transcend the laws of nature that he created in order to accomplish his purposes, especially his purposes when they are to redeem the creatures that he loves and to restore the world that he created to its original goodness. We can believe it. Every Sunday after the conclusion of the sermon, we not only recite the Apostles' Creed, but we also come to the Lord's table to celebrate the sacrament of communion, which is, and maybe you've never thought about this, but again, I encourage you to think about this this morning, it is a declaration of the reality of the Incarnation. It's a declaration every week that the Word, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. He took on a body like ours, and it was broken. Its blood shed for us for our salvation. And the Lord's Supper also, in addition to the Christmas story, proclaims the heart of the Father, that God is with us and for us. Another pastor and theologian, Cornelius Plantinga Jr., has put it this way. So Christians have always celebrated with thoughtful joy the advent and career of God's Son, Both at Christmas and communion, we remind ourselves that God gave and then gave up flesh and blood for us. So Liberty Church Collinswood, our God has not abandoned us. That's what I want you to hear this morning. Our God has not abandoned us. In the midst of our loneliness, in the midst of our isolation, he comes to us. Emmanuel, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.